Kia ora and welcome to Te Heringawaka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. On the 17th of March, we held an alumni webinar discussing climate change with a focus on the US and New Zealand. This was hosted by Dr. Fraga Harmson, who is the university's Director of Engagement in the US. Kia ora, welcome and warm greetings from Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. My name is Freka Harmson and I am the Director for US Engagement for Victoria University of Wellington. And I'm also an alumna, having graduated from the university with a PhD in geology in 1984. Today we have a really exciting session for you. The topic is Where to Next? Crunch Time for Climate Change. This is a very timely and topical discussion as climate change will have a major impact on humanity this century and beyond. Highly relevant to this discussion is Antarctica. The continent has a big impact on the world's sea level rise. Understanding how ice behaves on the continent is becoming increasingly crucial to figuring out just how much sea level rise we might expect. And what are the impacts to society in the United States and elsewhere? How do we effectively communicate climate change to the public? And what can be done to mitigate this threat? Today, we have a very prestigious panel joining us, whom I would like to introduce, beginning with Professor Tim Nash. Tim is a professor in Earth Sciences at the world-leading Antarctic Research Center here at Victoria University of Wellington. Professor Nash is an internationally renowned glaciologist and climate scientist. He's a member of the Antarctic Science Platform that addresses some of the most important questions facing Antarctica and ultimately humanity as we try to understand how it is changing. A Martha Muse Fellow, Professor Nash has been instrumental in establishing and leading the Antarctic Drilling Project and is a lead author on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Fifth Assessment Report. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'd also like to acknowledge Rebecca Priestley, who is an Associate Professor at Victoria University of Wellington and most recently served as Director of the University Centre for Science and Society. She is a Science Communication Specialist and Antarctic Historian and Author. Rebecca was Science Columnist for the New Zealand Listener for six years and is the author or editor of several books, including Dispatches from Continent 7, an anthology of Antarctic science, and most recently, 15 Million Years in Antarctica, an Antarctic memoir. She is a winner of the Royal Society of New Zealand Science Book Prize and won the Prime Minister's Science Communication Prize in 2016. In 2018, she was made a companion of the Royal Society, Tiaparangi. Last but not least, I would like to introduce Professor James Renwick, who is a leading climate scientist with a strong national and international reputation and four decades of experience in weather and climate research. Professor Renwick currently serves as the head of the School of Geography, Environmental and Earth Sciences at Victoria University of Wellington and has a broad interest in most aspects of climate from the distant past to the near future. 
Also, working in the Antarctic science platform, James's research focus is in the seasonal and interdecadal variability in Antarctic sea ice. Professor Renwick is a New Zealand climate change commissioner and has been a lead author with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Process for several years. He speaks regularly to the media on climate change issues and was awarded the 2018 Prime Minister's Prize for Science Communication. Thank you all for joining us today. Over the next 45 minutes, we will explore climate change with a focus on the role of Antarctica in sea level rise and the impact to the United States in particular. So we're going to start with a fairly broad question and perhaps I'll start with you, James. What is climate change and how did we get here? Oh, thanks, Raka, and, and wonderful to be on this webinar today. So, yeah, great question to start with. What is climate change? Why is the climate changing? And, yeah, how did we get here? So the climate changes when the Earth takes on either more, more energy, that's when it's warming up, or less energy when it's cooling down. Um, things are warming up now, so the Earth is absorbing more energy, more heat. And there's only two ways you can make that happen. Either the sun gets brighter, so more sunlight, more solar energy reaches the Earth, or you put more greenhouse gas in the air. So the, the heat the Earth radiates is absorbed by these gases. So if you have more of them in the air, it's like having a thicker blanket over the Earth. It warms what's underneath, that is, the, the Earth's surface. So... Uh, through geological time, both of these mechanisms have been in play, often often together. Uh, but right now, the sun really isn't getting any brighter, um, but greenhouse gas concentrations in the air are going up rapidly and have been really since the, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, which was, well, in the language of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that started in 1750. It's, it's not a bad date to, to go with. The mid-1700s was when uh, nations such as the UK started using coal for um, powering steam engines, which really got the Industrial Revolution underway. And that released carbon dioxide into the air. And carbon dioxide stays around for centuries, so it just builds up over time. And we've become very good at putting carbon dioxide in the air, burning um, coal and oil. Um, so petrol, diesel for, for vehicles, all of the ways we use this form of energy. And that's increased the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by almost 50% since the pre-industrial time. And that is what's leading to um, global warming and climate change. So it's been a process that's been going on for hundreds of years. And the race is now on to see how quickly we, we can stop doing this and how quickly we can stop the change. Great. Thank you. James. Tim, what can you add? Yeah, hi, everyone. Um, yeah, great to be here as well. Um, I thought that was a, a really great um, explanation, James. Perhaps um, I could add some context that the climate has always changed. And um, over millions of years, we know Earth, Earth's climate has changed and we have had periods where the Earth has been colder than it is today and we've had ice ages. Um, and we've had big ice sheets on the Northern Hemisphere continents. And then we have periods like today where we only have a small ice sheet on Greenland and we are in a warmer phase of climate. And so, James, um, 
said that there's really only two ways you can cause the earth to go in and out of these warm periods. And, and, and that is by changing the amount of solar radiation or energy heat hitting the, the surface of the earth or by changing the greenhouse gas gases in the atmosphere. And it, it so turns out that um, both of those things have changed regularly through time over tens of thousands to millions of years. Um, so um, I guess that's the context on which we're now seeing the effect of humans. And one of the challenges for us as scientists and particularly for what I do is to try and recognize what is the natural variability and what we have done on top of that, that is changing the direction of that natural variability. We are making big changes. Great. Thank you very much, Tim. Rebecca, well, how do we communicate the issues and the urgencies of climate change, you know, in a way that would um, perhaps create a positive response? Um, well, Rebecca, that's an incredibly challenging um, thing to do. Um, we've been communicating about climate change for um, some decades now and, and really accelerating over the last decade, but it hasn't always um, got a positive response. So I, I guess in the field of science communication that I'm involved in, we really we never really talk about the general public, but we acknowledge the need to um, communicate in different ways to different groups. So it's important that people like um, Tim and James communicate directly with policymakers and politicians. Um, there's also channels through the media and there's channels um, to reach all sorts of communities um, in different countries and living in different sorts of circumstances and communicate them in different ways, try and um, I guess meet them where they are, um, find common ground. Um, it's important to be able to win people's trust so they will listen to what you're communicating about. And I know that in the United States, um, I know that climate change is more of a contentious and more of a political issue than it is here in New Zealand. So that means that very different ways of communicating are needed. So I guess what we really want to do is to first um, get people to understand the urgency of the issue, but then it's really important to, um, to let people understand that they can make a difference, that there are things that we can do now to avoid um, the worst impacts of climate change. So I guess we need to communicate on multiple levels through multiple channels to multiple different audiences. It's urgent and we, we need to be doing it all. So very true. So how is Antarctica actually contributing to climate change knowledge in responding to the warming that's occurring? Perhaps Tim, I'll go to you first this time. Yeah, so... <laughs> The Antarctic ice sheet, for, for many people in the Northern Hemisphere, it's this mysterious um, lump of ice that's hidden away on, on the bottom of our planet. And um, it, it is indeed that, you know, it, it is a huge lump of ice. It holds 90% of the world's fresh water. And if it all melted, you'd have, have 60 meters of global sea level rise. So the potential for Antarctica to change and have really big global impacts um, is, is massive. And so the big question for many um, Antarctic scientists such as James and myself is, you know, how, how is it responding to this warming that James has talked about? 
and how will it respond in the future and particularly how will it contribute to sea level rise and these are really um, high priority questions that the world is is focusing on um, so I guess one of the interesting numbers is that for all the global warming that has happened so far not since the industrial revolution 93 percent of that heat has gone into the ocean and if we didn't have all the oceans um, sucking up that heat we would probably have seen 30 degrees or more of global warming which is incredible to even imagine um, so in many ways the ocean is slowing down the pace of that warming it's taking up the heat um, but a lot of that heat has gone into the deep southern ocean and that sits around Antarctica so one of the big threats is as some of that ocean warming continues and that heat gets up around Antarctica um, it's going to start nibbling away at the edges of that ice block and we all know that ice is very unhappy when you put it in water it melts way way faster and so the big question is how will this ocean warming these ocean dynamics contribute to future sea level rise and we can talk about the numbers um, at some stage, fracker, um, but it's fair to say there is still a considerable amount of uncertainty. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. James, would you like to contribute to that question? Um, yes, thanks very much. And yeah, again, nice, nice summary from Tim on, on the risks around melting uh, ice from the Antarctic continent. And, it's pretty well understood now from both from modeling of the ice sheets and also from looking at the geological record that we know that if the warming gets to be around two degrees above pre-industrial or a bit more than that, we may be locking in irreversible, unstoppable melting of at least a good part of the West Antarctic ice sheet, which would raise sea levels by somewhere between three and four metres perhaps. And that, that may be, or some people think that's, that's perhaps started already, but um, I'd say the consensus view is that it's, it's still in the future, but it may be coming in the next few decades. That is the, the beginning of this unstoppable melting. So I think it, it really adds to the urgency of the problem that if we're going to avoid adding to sea level rise significantly, we need to uh, stop the warming as, as per the Paris Agreement at well below two degrees above pre-industrial. But I just wanted to mention one of the other things about the Antarctic ice sheets is that they've been an amazing um, storehouse of information about what's happened to the climate in the past and the development of ice cores from Antarctica and from Greenland and understanding what those ice cores can tell us about past concentrations of greenhouse gases, past temperatures, past sea level and ice volume has really transformed our understanding of how the ice ages worked and how the climate varies um, naturally. So getting information from the Antarctic ice has been a critical part of understanding the climate over the last 40 or 50 years or so. Great, thank you. Well, just as a follow-up question, I think I heard Tim say that if all the ice on the Antarctic continent melted, that sea level would rise about 60 metres. But to put that into perspective for our audience who, you know, are thinking about their lifetimes, their children, their, their grandchildren, what 
could we expect by the year 2100? And I know there are lots of models out there, so it's a little difficult to put any precise numbers, but what might be the range of sea level rise that we might expect by the end of the century? Yeah, great question. And, and that really is the, 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 the question on most people's mind. How fast will that ice melt um, and contribute to sea level rise? So when it comes to sea level rise globally, there are three things that are going on. One is the polar ice sheets are melting, and that includes Greenland and Antarctica. Two, the glaciers are melting um, that are in the mid to low latitudes, like the mountain glaciers in the Himalaya and the Andes. And they, they could well be largely gone in the next 100 years with the path we're on. And the third thing is that heat that's gone into the ocean is causing the ocean surface to rise, because you know, we all know when we heat water, it expands. So those three things are contributing in equal proportions at the moment to sea level rise. And the best models and projections for the future suggest we should be planning for one meter of sea level rise by the end of the century. If we stay on the path we're on, if we fail to reduce our, our emissions. The best case scenario is if we achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement and keep global warming to well below two degrees. The best case scenario is we will still get half a meter of sea level rise. So we can put that in the bank. That's what we definitely have to deal with. Um, we can't avoid that. That's baked into the system from the things I've already been talking about. Um, so we can plan for that, but we can still avoid, as James pointed out, some of those really high sea level rises, particularly if Antarctica goes into some unstoppable meltdown and we get meters of sea level rise. So one of the good news stories about the Paris Agreement is if we get there, if we achieve it, um, we may save the Antarctic ice sheet from, from major meltdown. One of the things that's particularly difficult for people who are making decisions about how we live on our coastlines is what will happen to the Antarctic ice sheet. So we say one meter, um, many scientists, one meter of sea level rise by 2100, many scientists would say that's actually a little bit conservative because if the Antarctic ice sheet does indeed do something a little unpredictable, it could be nearer 1.5 meters. Um, and so there's this, there's this real uncertainty, you know, is it, is it going to be 50 centimetres if we achieve the P Paris target, or is it going to be closer to two metres if indeed things are more sensitive than we thought they were, particularly the Antarctic ice sheet. But the IPCC, which James and I contribute to, in their latest report, they have suggested one metre. There's a new report coming out, and the likely... Um, worst case scenario is around 1 to 1.2 metres by 2100. So 50 centimetres, 1 metre, 2 metres, all very significant numbers. And so I'm going to turn to Rebecca, who's our, our science communication expert. How important is it for the public to understand sea level rise? It's really important, and I think... First of all, you could just look at this from a sort of economic and pragmatic level. Um, 
the sea level rise is going to impact on, on our coastal communities and we need to do something about that. We need to adapt that the sea level that we know is coming. And I think in the next few decades, by 2050, there's a pretty strong agreement that there'll be 30 to 40 centimetres of sea level rise. And that will have a big impact in a lot of places. Um, but the impact it would have um, depends on where you are, like in very um, built up um, coastal areas like the east coast of the United States, where you've got places like New York and Miami. Um, if you're looking at the sort of sea level that we're expecting by the end of the century, people are going to have to make decisions about what to do about that. And it might involve um, putting economic resources towards building seawalls, um, pumping seawater to be able to protect the you know, billions of dollars worth of infrastructure that are already there. And in other sorts of coastal situations, it might be more about, you know, stop building houses right on the coast um, because they're not going to last very long. And, and to think about things like um, dune restoration and managed retreat, just um, there's, there's some parts um, up the coast from Wellington where, where we are, where there is a plan for a managed retreat. Instead of trying to repair and um, protect buildings that are right on the coastline, is to sort of start moving infrastructure further inland to allow for the sea level rise that's coming. So that all comes under the umbrella of what we call adaptation. Um, adaptation to the sea level rise that we know is coming. Um, but one thing that I think is, is really interesting and important is that the research that we've done shows that if people understand what's coming and understand how they need to adapt to it, they are also therefore more likely to understand the need for mitigation, the need to reduce our carbon emissions, um, to take action now to stop things getting that much worse. So as James and Tim know, and, and as talked about in the IPCC reports, there's a certain amount of sea level rise that we are committed to, that we know it's happening, we can't do anything about that. But whether that continues on beyond 2100 and continues to rise and rise, that's kind of up to us and what we do now. So that's what we're really keen to, to communicate about and get that message across. Great answer, Rebecca, thank you so much. James, do you want to add anything to that? Uh, I'm not sure that I can. It was a very comprehensive response. But um, just commenting on the thing that Rebecca mentioned about a community north of Wellington. I, I live on the Kapiti Coast, which is just north of Wellington, where there's been a lot of work done by the local council on how we respond to sea level rise. But it's been a very interesting story with communication with the public and the, the response and basically people's worry about their property values and just how you handle this kind of process. There's no, so far, there's no real national strategy about how we do this. So, you know, if you, if you own a house that's right by the beach and you're told that it might be washed away in 50 years' time, that's, that's a pretty hard message to take. And it, there's a lot of questions around how, how we handle this as a community, as a society, how we support each other and support the people who are really in the firing line with sea level rise in a way that doesn't disadvantage people. So just how this is all communicated and how it's um, rolled out and how people, how communities are supported uh, through dealing with sea level rise is a really important issue, I think. Great, thank you for your input. I'm going to turn to 
Tim next, and James alluded to this earlier, and that is the importance of the geologic record. And what can the past tell us about the climate change that's kind of unfolding right now globally? Oh, thank you for that great question, Freka. Uh, <laughs> I, am a, I am a geologist, so I work on past climate and I work with people who work on ice cores as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, as I was saying earlier, um, there have been these natural climate cycles in the past. Carbon dioxide in the past has been as high as it is today and even higher the further we go back in time. So one of the strategies we take in climate science is to ask the question, how did the world respond um, the last time we had carbon dioxide levels of today or, or, or higher. So we can, we can understand that by using the information that's preserved in the layers of um, rock and sediments um, around the world. So let, let, let me give you, give you an example. Um, the last time we had um, 400 parts per million carbon dioxide was 3 million years ago. So we have not seen this level of carbon dioxide on the planet for 3 million years. And we are able to determine this from analysis as we do of, of the rocks. Um, we can work out what the atmospheric composition was. So, you know, that's quite an incredible thing. Um, and then the question becomes, okay, well, well, how warm was the ocean? How warm was the atmosphere? What was growing on land? What was Antarctica like? What was the Arctic like? And we can say that um, the world got two and a half degrees warmer in response to that carbon dioxide. Um, and then we can say also that sea level was 20 meters higher. So one of the things we learn about this past window into a warmer climate is if we leave the current level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere for hundreds of years to a thousand years, um, we will end up with a planet that's warmer than two degrees and we will end up ultimately committing the planet to more than 10 metres sea level rise. So, you know, that, that's quite an important thing to know. It's an intergenerational impact, right? So this is something that we are doing right now that unless we keep our emissions um, in line with the Paris Agreement, we will commit future generations to that sort of climate. So, so that's just an example of why we, we do use the geologic record. There are things that the geologic record and the ice core records can't tell us. They can't always tell us how quickly or fast things are going to happen. They can in, in some instances, but not always, but they're very useful for looking at the end game. What have we done to our planet? And one of the remarkable things, and I'll let others talk after I, I say this, but one of the things that I find quite extraordinary is that we've had these natural ice ages and warm periods. And within the next few thousand years, we know our earth should naturally be heading into another ice age, a cold period. But we can say that it's virtually certain if we keep carbon dioxide levels above 300 parts per million, we will not enter that ice age. So as a species on this planet, we have taken control and are now turning the knobs that control natural climate. And we have taken us, ourselves off the natural trajectory. I find that quite incredible that a species on this planet um, is, is able to do that. Thank you, Tim. So James, we can really learn from the history that you know, is told in that geologic record. 
And it sends a very powerful message, right? It, it tells us, you know, what's happened before can happen again. That's exactly right, Fraka. And, you know, I, I guess I've come to this question from the other end of the spectrum from Tim. I'm a weatherman, essentially. My early training was in weather forecasting and thinking one day ahead or, or one day into the past, not, not a few million years. So I've, I've had a lot to learn about the history of the climate of the Earth and understanding why we have had ice ages and what happened 50 million years ago and, and so on and how the ice sheets have come and gone. Um, and it's, it's an amazing story. It's, it's incredible to understand how variable the climate has been in the past. And I think that's a, it's a real message that's come through in all sorts of climate research and, and in my lifetime, the last um, 50 years or so, that we understand that Small changes in the amount of sunlight falling on the Earth, small changes, what sound like small changes in greenhouse gas concentrations, can have huge consequences for the climate system and huge consequences for the amount of ice um, stored in Antarctica and Greenland and so on. Um, and I think, well, Tim knows a lot better than I do, but only a matter of a couple of decades ago, I think the general feeling was that the Antarctic ice sheets were pretty insensitive and there was nothing bad was going to happen anytime soon. But the opposite is the understanding now that actually, yeah, they're really sensitive and a little bit more warming could do major damage and change things dramatically. So marrying up that understanding of how things have changed in the past, which is, is quite broad brush, you know, we're talking thousand year averages and global average temperatures and so on joining that up with the understanding of how the climate system works today with all of the um, storms and winds and, and the way temperatures vary across the planet. That, that's been super informative for understanding what might happen in the future, given what we know about what, what's happened in the past. So it's been a really fruitful collaboration between the sort of modern day, like myself and the um, people who understand the, the geological past, such as Tim and his colleagues. Thank you. We've, we've got a lot of people in our audience that are in the United States. So this question is, is more directed there. What will happen, what is happening to cities such as New York, Miami, New Orleans, in terms of sea level rise? And then we just had a major winter storm you know, once in several hundred years storm in the state of Texas. What's happening there? Um, maybe Tim, I'll go to you first and then and then James. Yeah, James can tackle the, the, the major storm in Texas and I'll talk a little bit about, about sea level rise. Um, yeah, I mean, the US isn't, isn't alone here, but it, it has a huge population that live on the coastline and um, you know, quite simply, sea level is going to rise and it's going to have an impact on many of the big US cities. You know, we've mentioned Boston, New York, Miami, Los Angeles, San Francisco. I was recently at a, um, well, it's not so recent now, it was actually three years ago, there was a major sea level conference in New York City. And we had, uh, we had the scientists and then we had the, the, the decision makers and we had 
community groups represented, the sort of thing Rebecca's talked about, you know, what happens to communities, how do you communicate this message in communities, a really interesting conference. And we had the comptroller from New York City, the guy who's basically in charge of all the infrastructure and planning. And they rolled out a, a plan to protect Manhattan Island and um, it looks very impressive. And, and part of that plan is things like the lower stories of all buildings have to be submersible. <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah, as Rebecca was saying, there'll, there'll be a pumping process. But if this plan works, you essentially put a seawall around Manhattan Island and, and protect it from sea level rise. Now, that's okay, given how much uh, money there is there, but not every community will be able to have a, have a seawall. And, you know, there are more vulnerable communities. Obviously, Florida is now experiencing regular sunny day flooding from just the small amount of sea level rise we've had so far. And so that small amount of sea level rise, once you put a, a, a king tide on it or a storm, causes massive flooding. And the reality for Florida is that with the best case scenario, they're in real trouble because 50 centimetres of sea level rise means large parts of Florida, you just, you just can't live there. There's an added elephant in the room, and that is the Antarctic ice sheet. And it's really hard to imagine that something so far away from the US could matter so much. But if the West Antarctic ice sheet melts, and it melts rapidly, um, sea level around Antarctica will probably fall a little bit. But sea level in the Northern Hemisphere will go up much more than the global average. And, you know, it's difficult to explain this, but it's to do with the change in the gravitational field as you, of the Earth as you move water mass around. But the, the bottom line is that the bullseye for the most global sea level rise anywhere in the world, if, Antar if West Antarctica melts, is right on Boston City. So they, the eastern US will get, and the west actually, will get about 20% more sea level rise than the rest of the world if um, Antarctica melts. Now, I'm not trying to scaremonger. Um, this is just simply what, what the science is saying. And I think to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And what we've been talking about, mitigation is super important. We've got to stop this train from going on the track it's on. We've got to reduce our emissions. But we also know what's coming down the pipeline and we must adapt and protect our communities from what's coming. Thank you very much, Tim. That was very comprehensive. So, James, I'm going to talk, ask you to talk about Texas. Yes, this recent winter storm, which affected a large part of the US and, um, yeah, as far south as the um, northern part of Mexico, I think. So, pretty amazing cold air outbreak. And, and people these days talk about polar vortex and these polar vortex storms. Um, and that's that's right. But, but what's going on here, and it's a really active area of research in the atmospheric science community, is understanding what's driving what here. So what normally happens is we have the jet stream flowing around the sort of middle latitudes of the northern hemisphere. And on the poleward side of that, on the Arctic side of the jet stream, we've got all the cold air, the Arctic air. And on the equatorward side, over the US, for instance, we have the mid-latitude and subtropical air, so it's, it's warmer, closer to the equator. 
And normally the jet stream blows strongly and, and those masses of air are separate. What happens when you get one of these polar vortex outbreaks is that jet stream slows down a bit and it starts to, a bit like the pattern on my waistcoat today, it sort of starts to meander around. Instead of just whizzing around the planet at high speed, like a river that flows over a very flat area of land that sort of wanders. And where this jet stream wanders southwards, such as it did over the US a few weeks ago, the cold air that's on the poleward side can wander southwards as well. Uh, so we had this uh, bend in the jet stream that came way south of where it normally sits and brought all this cold air, which is normally in the Arctic, uh, right down to quite low latitudes. But because there are these meanders, then you go further east and the meander is in the opposite direction, back towards the pole. And in fact, at the time that Texas was having these record cold outbreaks, cold spells, um, parts of Western Europe were having record high temperatures. So I think places in Germany got to daytime temperatures of more than 20 degrees C. So, you know, um, something like in the 70s Fahrenheit. In, in what is normally the middle of winter, the average temperatures are close to freezing. So this is what you see when it's really cold somewhere, probably going to be really warm somewhere else. And, and over the whole globe or the hemisphere, that averages out to... No, no change, but you can get very big regional variations when you have these meanders in the jet stream. So the question is, is this climate change? Are we seeing more, more of these events because the Arctic sea ice has melted away largely and the Arctic is warming up very rapidly? And that reduces the temperature difference between the pole and the equator, which is what drives the strength of the winds. So it seems reasonable to think, well, yes, the Arctic has warmed up a lot, so the winds should have got weaker, so we should see these events more often. But turns out it's a bit more complicated than that. And if you look in the upper atmosphere, different things are happening. So there are there's some pretty vigorous debates going on in the literature right now about whether these polar vortex events are caused by the change in the Arctic and the sea ice loss, or whether actually it's the other way around that the, the meanders and the jet stream are helping to warm the Arctic? Or are they both driven by something else? <laughs> so it's, it's a bit hard to say yet, but it does seem as though there have been more of these kinds of things happening in the last few decades. So perhaps it is a, a signal of climate change, but we're, we're still working on exactly what's driving what. So, Rebecca, what do we know about the public's current understanding of sea level rise and climate change in general? Um, well, there, there's been a lot of research into climate change communication and people's understanding of climate change, but not much research into sea level rise. Um, there's been a bit of work in the US and um, we've done some work here in New Zealand um, to survey um, a sample of the New Zealand public about their understanding um, of sea level rise. And we did find that people are very concerned about it, um, but they don't understand it very well. Um, and so we did ask people how much sea level rise they expected by 2100 and what they thought the worst case scenario could be. So um, as Tim and James have said, by 2100, we're expecting sort of one to 1.2 meters of sea level rise. That's how bad it could get. Um, 
And when we asked New Zealanders about it, about a third of the people underestimated the amount of sea level rise, about a third of the people got it about right, but a third of people um, really overestimated it. They thought that we might be getting sea level rise of um, five metres, eight metres, 12 metres, or even 15 metres by 2100. And when you, you know, really try and imagine what that would be like, it's horrific. That's, that's beyond catastrophic. That would have all our coastal cities completely underwater. Um, so I think there's a danger in underestimating sea level rise, um, but there's also a real danger in overestimating it. When people are faced with those sorts of prospects about the future, it's so daunting, it's so terrifying that it works against taking any action. It just seems like a problem that's too big to tackle. So I guess our challenge is to sort of try and um, get the message across that, um, you know, there is a general agreement that it will generally be about one metre. And, and that's quite hard whenever, um, you know, we have a, a visiting um, scientist who decides that, um, you know, they think it's going to be five metres by 2100 and they do a lecture tour and they get heaps of media coverage. So the messages that people are getting from the media is really confused. There's um, voice given to um, climate catastrophists, I guess. Um, there's sometimes voice given to climate skeptics. There was something in the paper today. Um, so the sort of moderate views, the scientific consensus often, you know, is not as exciting or newsworthy. So I guess our challenge is to try and, you know, get this consensus view out there because it's a lot more useful um, and, um, It'll, you know, we'll do better if we act on that rather than some of these other um, projections. The other interesting thing we found was that um, when, when we sort of asked people what they thought was the causal mechanisms of sea level rise, why is a warmer climate leading to sea level rise, people had mistakenly identified uh, melting sea ice as causing sea level rise rather than the melting land-based glaciers and the melting ice sheets. Um, and that was kind of interesting to us. Um, and melting sea ice doesn't contribute to sea level rise. The, that ice is already in the water. Um, but we thought that perhaps melting sea ice gets a lot of media coverage um, melting in the Arctic. Um, so perhaps there's sort of a false association there. Um, but I also did want to mention, you know, picking up on what Tim had said about um, the things being done in New York and Miami about sea level rise is a really good book. It's a novel, New York 2140 by Kim Stanley Robinson. Um, it's fiction, but it, it's very informed by the science. And it's a, it's a good way to get a sort of overview of some of these possible adaptations and of, to sea level rise. Um, though I think he sort of over the amount of sea level rise that could be possible by then. Yeah, a good read anyway. That was a great response to that question. It leads into the next question, which is what can we do to mitigate climate change? And is it is it too late? Um, you know, it's too little, too late. What what can be done? How about Tim, if you want to respond to that? Well, I'll kick it off. Um, it's it's a big question, and but but it's not too late is the point I want to make. Um, it isn't too late. Um, there are pathways that require both top-down and bottom-up approach. We need leadership globally and we need people action. Um, and we've demonstrated 
um, in some countries better than others, but during a crisis that we can move pretty quickly if there is the urgency to do it. So it's not too late. There are pathways that are feasible. And I see there's some questions around the just transition that, you know, there's this fear out there that our lifestyles will be impacted in such a way um, it won't be worth it, but that's not true either. James is better to talk on this from a New Zealand perspective as he's his climate commission have just put out a report with pathways um, for New Zealand. I just wanna make one point and that is about targets and the Paris target of two degrees or 1.5 degrees. All is not lost if we don't achieve those targets. The targets are there as, a, as something we're really aiming for with high urgency. But many people think, oh, it's too late. We can't do it. We're so close to 1.5 degrees already. But that's not the point. The point is that even if we land our climate and stabilize it at 2.5 degrees, that's a heck of a lot better than four or five degrees and will avoid many, many impacts. So the thing in our communication is to not just say it's all or nothing, we've failed because we didn't get there, or it looks like we won't get there, I'm going to give up. It's to just point out that there's a range of futures and what we're doing is reducing the risk we, we all face. Thank you, Tim. James, you want to talk a little more about that and, and particularly the New Zealand situation? Um, sure. And... You know, Tim's exactly right. It's not too late. I think that's a really important message that if we take urgent action, and it is urgent, as, as um, Rebecca was saying, we can stop climate change relatively quickly. What we have to do is stop adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, especially carbon dioxide, because it's the one that sticks around for centuries. So, you know, that's that's simple, right? We just stop putting carbon dioxide in the air. But the trouble is that burning fossil fuels is what does most of the damage, and that pretty much is how the global economy is powered still. Um, so not just a question of turning off a few taps here and there. We, we really have to transform how energy is produced worldwide. So it's, it's a big ask, but um, the IPCC put out a report in 2018 on one and a half degrees of warming and how that compares to two degrees. And it, it put up scenarios for how we could reduce emissions quickly enough to stop at about one and a half degrees of warming, which involves getting to zero carbon dioxide emissions by 2050 or so, by the middle of the century. And this is what the New Zealand Climate Change Commission has based its um, draft advice to government on. And, and that... Um, advice to government, which is being reviewed publicly, it's, it's a consultation period at the moment, um, and the final advice will go to government in May, it shows that we can do this in New Zealand. There are known pathways, technologies. We don't need to wait for any sort of smart new uh, silver bullets on the agricultural sector or anywhere else if we just ramp up renewable electricity production, electric vehicles instead of internal combustion engine and so on. There's lots of things we can do right now that will reduce emissions quite rapidly. And if the whole globe can do this, then we can stop warming at certainly what, somewhere between one and a half and two degrees. And like Tim says, it's not all over at any point. Um, that IPCC report made the point that 
every tenth of a degree of warming from here adds to the frequency of extreme events and so on. Um, but there's no point at which the climate sort of runs away and we turn into some hothouse where everyone dies. That, that won't happen. I did want to give Rebecca one uh, very quick opportunity um, here just to close out, because I, I noticed that you spoke at the New Zealand Writers Festival about your latest book, and the theme was climate change grief and the importance of hope. So can you just tell us very briefly a little bit about that, and then we'll go to questions. Sure, sure. So um, this is my latest book, 15 Million Years in Antarctica. It's kind of an Antarctic memoir. Um, Tim features a lot in it. Um, it documents um, my three trips to Antarctica, um, one of which I spent time in a um, field camp with Tim. And in it, um, sort of a theme right throughout it is my anxiety about climate change, about, you know, sort of lying awake at night worrying about it. And um, I found with my students, climate anxiety is a really big thing. People are really, really worried about it and freaked out and, and don't know what to do. And other people are experiencing a lot of grief about what's happening to our planet. And, um, you know, those are both valid emotions, but it's really great to be able to sort of grab them, harness them and turn it around and turn that into hope and turn that into action. Um, and, yeah, I hope that you know, through things like doing this talk and, and talking about the things that we can do and the possibilities that we do have to make make a change and make things better now, give people a bit of that hope and try to um, stimulate a bit more action. Well, thank you. Okay, we've got some um, questions that are coming up, some very good questions that I want to uh, give to the panel. So feel free to jump in and answer these. The first one's from Peter Bryant who says that he is a Kiwi based in the US and he spoke at the PM's 2019 summit, the just transition to net zero emissions. So he's interested in the panel's views of the just transition and its implications both in New Zealand and globally on action on the energy transition that is needed to address climate change. So I'll just throw that out uh, to the panel and anyone's welcome to answer that. Yes, absolutely. It's a great question and a very important one. Um, we are talking about transforming the global economy. Um, so it's a, it's a big deal. And people in uh, polluting industries, let's say, people who work in the energy sector or um, in manufacturing petrol and diesel-powered cars and so on, have to move out of those um, industries. You know, we have to stop burning fossil fuels. So, you know, through no fault of their own, some, some communities, some um, workers are in are working in areas that add to the problem much more than others. And we need to find ways to make sure that people in those sectors can transition to, to cleaner um, occupations and, and cleaner futures in a way that doesn't disadvantage anybody. So it's very, all very well to say we've got to stop burning fossil fuels. That is what we need to do, but we need to find ways to help people move from how we live our lives and produce energy today to how we need to do that in the future. So the idea of green jobs um, and yeah, financial support from governments to allow people to move from where they are now to where, where we all need to be in the future is an important Thing, and it's part of the advice from the Climate Change Commission here in New Zealand to, to help facilitate that. Different countries have different issues and different things to deal with, but um, it's something that we all need to keep in mind for sure. 
Right. Okay. So thank you. Um, let's go to another question. This one's from Yvonne Glasmeyer, who writes, the evidence and models are overwhelming, yet the world continues the business as usual scenario or worse. What do you make of the inability of major countries, the US, China, Europe, politicians and populations to take real decisive action instead of taking the path of the least resistance right now? Uh, yeah, look, that's, you know, it's such an important question. And I mean, I think a couple of a couple of things to unpack there. Um, we're actually not heading on the, the worst case scenario. I mean, the business as usual scenario. Um, I mean, we sort of are when you look at um, when we look at models and then look at, at how temperatures have changed or, you know, how sea level is rising. But the projections based on the pledges that were put, each country pledged to reduce their emissions by a certain amount at the, in the Paris Agreement. And if you add up those pledges and they are acted on, we're actually heading to a climate that will be three and a half degrees warmer. Um, maybe, maybe actually even a bit, you know, not, not as bad as that. Um, and this is from Climate Action Tracker, which is a group of people that look at all the 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 the, the world, the countries of the world, and their policy settings, and what they're actually doing, and um, what they propose to do. So we're on a path that won't get us to two degrees, but it might get us nearer to three degrees. I'm not saying that that should give us any any feeling of relaxation um, or hope, because I think we really, you know, have to keep the the foot on the gas, so to speak, and, and keep aiming for that um, that that Paris target. Now, um, the inability of countries and, and, and the bad actors that are out there that don't want to play their role and share the burden in, in this global goal we're trying to achieve is a massive issue. As James has said, we need the big polluters to be on board. Having said that, you know, China um, is making big inroads and even the United States is making big inroads despite the policy of the Trump government. If you go to the state level and look at the transition to renewable energy and some of the targets that cities and states have set themselves, they're making um, really good progress. It's not enough progress. And so um, yet the bad actors will come and go, but the hope is that it's all in our best interest to achieve this there are so many co-benefits that will come, not only from getting the, the, the temperature down, but from the transition to renewables, from a sustainable future, healthier people. There are just so many demonstrated co-benefits that, that come from these changes. And ultimately, you know, I think most countries, companies, big corporations and institutions know they have to get there. Sorry, a bit of a long-winded answer. No, but that, that was fabulous, Tim. Thank you so much. Um, we're about running out of time. I'm going to go to one last very, very short question here. Very, If I could get a very short response. Uh, this one's from Nancy Nazer. Why were there not big ice sheets in the southern hemisphere, or were there? I guess that's me again. Um, okay. Uh, great question. Um, in fact, there were larger ice sheets in the Southern Hemisphere during the last ice age, which was only 20,000 years ago. Um, so New Zealand, for example, had a lot of ice in the South Island. 
um, Patagonia and South America had quite a bit of ice. But it's pretty simple. There's more real estate to stick ice on in the Northern Hemisphere. And so when the world cools, um, the ice sheets developed primarily in the Northern Hemisphere. And essentially all that happens is that um, the summers become too cold to melt the snow that accumulates in the winter. Um, and so in, during the last ice age, that snow hung around and it built up a, a very large ice sheet where the majority of the Southern Hemisphere right. is all water and ocean with a bit of land and you just got nowhere to park an ice sheet. Great, that's a great way to end it. Um... Um, I want to take the opportunity to thank the panelists. I want to thank you, Tim, Rebecca. I want to thank you, James, for your time and your insights into climate change, sea level rise, and the critical role that the Antarctic plays. Um, it's been really wonderful to have three very talented, very accomplished individuals with us today. Uh, it's been quite the pleasure to hear your perspective on what's obviously a rapidly evolving and, and dynamic situation. And thank you to all of you, our audience from Victoria University of Wellington for taking the time to join us today. Goodbye from Down Under and Victoria University of Wellington. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni, Stefan Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere Rā.